This is the Seafair Investor Podcast, bringing you the tides on investing and personal finance from two millennial seafarers and alike. I am your host, Soshin, a full-time seafarer, a value investor, and a personal finance enthusiast. Welcome to episode 29, and a happy new year! <laughs> After several months of going into hiatus, I'm now back into podcasting. I took a break from everything due to personal reasons, but now it's a new year and signals a fresh start. Podcasting will always be close to my heart, so this is one of my few passions that I don't want to let go no matter what. It made me appreciate investing more and especially led me to meet and talk to a lot of people on and off show because of the podcast. And last year, I had several fantastic guests that really helped me shape how I approach investing itself. Again, speaking of fresh start, there's no better way to start the year but with an interview I did with the dynamic duo Skippy and Dougals. I actually did this interview several months ago, but I believe the lessons from their investing styles will always be timely, regardless. Skippy and Dougals are both hosts of a podcast named Skippy and Dougals Talk About Investing. They're really best pals and If you listen to them, it's like you're watching a debate, but it's an entertaining one. (laughs) The conversation we had was really fun for this episode, as sometimes I'll just be there like an audience to them, bantering their own ideas with each other. Anyway, I don't want to stall more, as this has been stalled already more than enough. Now, without further ado... Let's go to my interview with Skippy and Dougals. Skippy and Dougals, welcome to the Seafair Investor Podcast. Excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Yes, I I really appreciate you both being here in the show, given especially how how hard it is for us to time this interview because of an almost opposite time zones. Time zones really suck, man. (laughs) And also, I'm excited how the conversation dynamic will go because uh, this will be the first time I'll be having two guests in one episode. So I'm really hyped for this one. Yeah, we're excited to be here. We're a lot to handle. You you might regret it, though. We're about to find out. I'm really I'm I'm not gonna regret. I, I hope I won't, but I'm excited actually. So I I want just to start by asking. Who is Skippy here and who is Dougals? Just for my listeners not to really mix up on, you, on both of you. I am Skippy. Um, the, the, to give a little background, the podcast started um, anonymously because um, I had a job in finance and banking. It's possible, Dougals and I haven't talked about this, but it's possible on episode 100 or so, we may actually reveal our two true identities. But if you hear this voice, you're talking to Skippy. Yep. And, and this is Dougals. The other way to tell us apart is if you hear someone that's talking a bunch of garbage nonsense about investing, that's usually Skippy, whereas with the wisdom typically comes from Dougal. So that, that's the other way to tell us apart. 
<laughs> I can see uh, um, Skippy's eyes just roll above. <laughs> no, I'm just really <laughs> mad because he stole my joke. Like, I already had that joke planned for two minutes from now, <laughs> and he beat me to it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So now that we've already talked about that, perhaps we can start by, you know, doing short introductions of yourself first. And then go into why both of you decided to start a podcast. I mean, as it it seems every time I listen to your episodes, both of you sound to be really having fun, which is really infectious, to be honest. I always laugh when you're, at your crack of jokes. And so that made me curious how the dynamic duo started and why. Yeah, I'll kick this one off. I mean, we've known each other for more than 20 years um, and always been wow. interested in like, business strategy, investing stuff. Um, so we, you know, lived in different parts of the country and, and kind of stayed in touch, but we weren't talking nearly as much as we are, uh, for the past two years. Um, and then Dougal's actually pitched me the idea. He, one day I was jumping on the trampoline with my four-year-old and I got this text message. It was like, you want to be on my podcast? And I said, yeah, sure. Thinking he just wanted me to do one episode. He's starting a podcast. I'm going to come in and talk value investing with a, a true, an actual investing style, not his garbage. And it turned out he had grander plans than that. Yeah, that, that's about right. And it's the thing that I find to be most interesting is we, we share like a, like general core philosophies around the way the world works. And they're also pretty divergent, I think. And so it's uh we're pretty well read. We both read a lot. We consume a lot of content. And so whenever we would talk, it would always be this wide ranging conversation, right? That could go almost anywhere. I mean, there was an episode, a few episodes ago on our podcast, the Skippy and Dougal's Talk Investing Podcast. Let me just throw that out. No, shameless plug. <laughs> um, the, we, I brought up uh, bees in California and how California was calling fish bees, right? And then Skippy went off about like buying honey from China, right? That's just the way our conversations went. And I just found them to be a lot of fun. And so figured, let's see if anyone else in the world cares about this as well. Um, and so that, that's, that's why I've been to pitching the idea in a little bit of a clandestine fashion so I could hook him in. What's really fun about this though, um, looking back now that we've been doing it for basically two years is simply that I think we started, um, trying to be true to ourselves, but with like a serious podcasting, it's serious investing podcasting take. And I think we've evolved into, uh, being truly authentic to ourselves, but also giving, good, um, well-read, well-researched uh, takes on investing and investing strategies. Um, and the really fun part is people seem to really like it. Um, we're shocked by the kind of the popularity, even though we're not one of the most popular podcasts in the world, we're still like, there's definitely fans. So it's been really fun to be able to be true and uh, let our friendship kind of uh, show in the podcast and see people in enjoy it. Yeah, the, the the chemistry you both have is really really nice. I mean, it's like it's like if, if every time I listen to your episode, it's like you know I'm in a bar and then I I just happen to be beside both of you and just I'm just listening and then while drinking beer, like mm, wow, they're, they're arguing about that. <laughs> but it's, it feels like that. It's it's that kind of intimacy between two really good friends and talk about investing and then and also it's kind of a refreshing take on investing because I. I 
I'm I'm kind of serious on my podcast also. But with you guys, and especially your titles on your every episode, it doesn't scream investing, actually. If you don't read the title or the name of your podcast, you won't really know that it's talking about investing. So it's really like a refreshing take on, on how uh, to approach investing in a really hu- humorous and uh, fun way. I think, it, sorry, Skippy, do you want to you happen? No, go ahead. Um, I think that's an important element personally around getting more people into investing, which is something that both of us care a lot about, because oftentimes it can come across as this really intimidating, scary thing that most people can't or shouldn't do. And so therefore you need a quote unquote professional, right, to manage your money. And when you think about the everyday person, they don't have millions and millions of dollars they're trying to invest. It's just getting started with what you have. And so I personally, I think that that's really important is to make it something that feels approachable, to make it something that feels like people want to do it. You want to get involved in an intelligent way, in a smart way, but something that's authentic to your own personality as well. Well, and also, um, I think we stumbled across this. I mean, I don't think we intended it, but it's important to have fun. I'm as big of investing nerd as you could possibly get. You know, I could read the intelligent investor all day, every day. But even with that mindset, I can still get bored by the by people that are too serious. You know, you mentioned feeling like you're sitting in a bar, and sometimes that's just more fun than reading an investing textbook effectively. So um, hopefully that makes it easy to consume. And I've been shocked. We have some people that don't like investing that have been with us for two years now. Uh, because they like the chemistry and the jokes between us um, and that kind of feeling like you're in a bar um, having fun with friends. So uh, I, we stumbled upon it and I think it's been really good. But the best part about all that is that Dougals and I end up with a smile on our face every Saturday morning when we record. And so it I, to be like sappy here almost, it's fun to talk to him. You know, I, I get to talk to him more than I would otherwise because we have the scheduled time uh, to be silly yeah it's actually like a good way to start your day you know <laughs> talk talk about investing that is fun and then you go all around this rabbit holes that actually to be honest every time i listen to your episode episodes I, I sometimes i can't keep track of what you're really talking about it's 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 that's really fun and and i made it like a habit <clears throat> now and i will make it a habit when i get on board the ship that I will listen first to your, or I will listen after um, listening to like a, a serious podcast about investing, and then I will listen to your podcast to have like a a, um, a cleansing <laughs> to what I really heard, and to to end it like in a positive note. So <laughs> I will make sure of that. I like that a cleansing. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So now. I want to kind of move on to ask about your individual investing journeys. Uh, I don't know if you talk about that in your podcast or episode because it's it's really hard to pinpoint, <laughs> actually. So I want to ask um, about your individual investing journeys, but to shorten the time as I have other interesting questions that I'm really interested in knowing your answers, I will kind of frame it this way. When was the moment you knew that investing in individual stocks is for you or what hooked you into investing in, in, in the start? Yeah, we talk about this a lot on the show. Um, but but one, I think we both believe that you're kind of born with an investing style and it's about discovering that. Um, so I 
was born as a value investor. I didn't realize that I was a value investor until probably 21, 22, when I first read The Intelligent Investor. Um, And then I've been hardcore Ben Graham, Chapter 14, Intelligent Investor, Deep Value ever since. Um, But my, my personal temperament allows me to do that. If we talk through any of my holdings on this episode, you'll see that most of it's uh, been so beat down that your average person like just couldn't get excited about holding those stocks. And that's that's where I live. I buy stuff from the garbage heap. Um, <laughs> so uh, that is very core to who I am as a person and definitely who I am as an investor. One of the things that Douglas and I talk about sometimes is a lot of people have investing podcasts. Very few people actually uh, purchase individual stairs of stocks while having an investing podcast, right? So we truly do like eat our own cooking or whatever the phrase is. Um, we're we're talking through the investing analysis that we actually do and where we actually put our money on the line. Um, like it's a significant portion of our family's wealth that's invested in the ideas we talk about. Although nothing on the show is investing in advice, obviously. So. I don't know if that answers your question, but I almost got to flip it to Dougal so he can talk about the garbage he buys. And uh, <laughs> I'd love for you to touch on your current performance of your portfolio too, Dougal's. Yeah. If, so going back to trying to think about the moment, I think that's a fascinating question. What, what was the moment when I knew? I always needed to buy individual stocks from the moment that I got into investing. There was no, there was no option for me. And similarly, uh, what introduced me to the world of investing was reading The Intelligent Investor. Um, I also I used to work for a, a business author around 20 years ago, and we studied mm-hmm. how to build great companies, right? That, that was the study of it. And I just got so fascinated by the idea that a company could have this, what we call the flywheel, like compounding effect where small decisions can then add up into greatness. And from that moment, I was like, I want to find this greatness, right? And so reading The Intelligent Investor, reading um, about Warren Buffett and following what Buffett did, I went, it's possible. I, don't, I do not believe that I am Warren Buffett by any means, but it is possible for a human being to select stocks that beat the market. Like that's a possible thing. It's very, it's, it can be more rare, but it's possible. And that journey has been fun for me. And it has been, as Skippy uh, mentioned, one can do is to go and discover your investment style. And that has been my journey. I started off looking for cheap stocks, right? That could, going off intelligent investor, um, that would then grow into their mean reversion as he likes to, uh, to tout about, to go back to whatever their value is. And it just like didn't quite fit my personality very well. Um, I, mm. I didn't like going through the garbage, right? And so um, I, I now invest more in what I call long trend momentum. So companies that have started to build their flywheel, but their flywheel hasn't fully taken off yet right? They still have gas left in the tank. That's what I look for. It's a quantitative style. And I, I look for stocks that way. Um, and it's served me pretty well, right? My portfolio on average is a little bit over 20%, at least for the last decade. And so it's served quite well. Um, we'll see if that continues, right? The past is not the future, but, uh, but it fits my investment style, and my personality quite well. And so to me, that that's what's most important. It allows me to hold, I have a really volatile portfolio as well. And it allows me to hold onto stocks when they go down, you know, 30, 40% and then go back up, right? 40%. Like I ain't no thing, right? It's kind of what I say to me, like my, uh, my heart rate is fine in that world. Yes. So before we go to, you know, I, I, I actually read your, 
blog on the Farfin investing moda is what I was amazed actually. But but before we go into that one, because I, I, I want I try I want to try as much as possible to not go into a lot of divergence here because knowing both of you, it's it's gonna be a lot of divergence. But I'm gonna walk back a bit because both of you share um you know this uh this the starting in journey in investing about the intelligent investor uh which a book by benjamin graham and as i understood and i read it it's it's not for actually for beginners it's it's a really hard book for if if not it's not a good book to give to someone who is who want to go investing so I, my my question is how how did you you know um go through with it and how did it really inspire you because some people I know when they read, they they cannot get into the chapters and they just you know quit investing actually. Yeah, I I think that's a really great point. So, um, you know, I have a very analytical background, engineer followed by MBA, and then I've worked in finance and banking for decades now, um, or sorry, fifteen years now. Um, wow. So I picked up the intelligent investor and I was able to digest it. It, you know, it's written almost for an analyst. Um, but I never tell people the first book they should read is The Intelligent Investor. I have two books that I think the novice investor should read. First is uh, Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth. And the second is The Wealthy Barber. If you start with those books, you're going to understand why it's important to invest in equities. And those books are going to tell you not to invest in individual stocks. Uh, it's just that's going to give you the really big picture. And then if you want to dive deep into the weeds, you can work your way to the intelligent investor. But it's funny. I love that question because so many people end up starting with the intelligent investor. And I think it turns a lot of people off. Also, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I mentioned that like I'm born as an intelligent investor and I'm talking about I could have been six years old at a garage sale negotiating prices you know like just be like no way i'm wow. giving you 50 cents for this <laughs> I'm, i've been looking for a deal since i i was born um most people aren't that way right so if you dive into benjamin graham's concepts that are very much shaped by the great depression and all these financial ratios that you've probably never heard of you're probably just gonna go gosh i hate investing I'm never listening to the Seafair Investor podcast. I'm never listening to Skippy and Dougal talk investing. I'm just done. Can someone else do this for me or do I not have to think about it? Um, so I, I think there's better places to start for to give you a long-winded answer there. Yeah, fully agreed with the better places to start. But it's the way my brain works, I think. Similarly, like my brain is just naturally analytical. And so when I read that book, for me, it said, oh, there's so much to unwind in this world, this fascinating world of investing. And so it just it led me to like pull on different threads, right? And just keep going and keep going. And so I just like going very, very deep. It's one of the, I, sorry for the divergence. It's one, it's one of the things that I think allows me, at least it's the story I tell myself is what Skippy always tells me, that allows me to deal with the volatility is because I've gone so deep into looking at all the data of the stock market. Like I studied daily, monthly, weekly trends from like the 1920s to understand what has happened at different points in history. And it makes me have confidence, right? As Buffett always says, like bet on America, it has, it allows me to have confidence in the stock market that I believe at some point it will come back. And maybe one day that won't happen, but for my psychology, that's my belief. And so I just love going deep. And so that's why that book was a great place for me personally to start. So now it actually makes sense because, um, it's not for every people actually, but, but, but I want to kind of ask if which 
books can you recommend you know for actually from especially for my listeners i mean not all seafarers have analytical minds like both of you so so which books can you kind of recommend for actual beginners who doesn't have any financial background to start with Douglas how about you start yeah my my brain kind of I would say depending on whether someone believes they want to invest in individual stocks or not I would have different books Mm. if it's about individual stock investing I wouldn't go to investing books I'd actually go toward like business books. I would recommend mm. books like like Good to Great, for example, which is one of the things that like got me into to businesses. It's just understanding how companies work and how personalities work. Like to me, that that's where I'd want folks to start if you want to go down the the individual investing model um, world. Um, yeah, I'd probably go to business books. So th- no, that's the that's the one that I'd, I'd have someone start with. Yeah, and if I just had to name one, I mentioned it earlier, but I'd start with The Wealthy Barber. Um, The Wealthy Barber, if people have never heard of it, I can pretty much guarantee if you um, enact those principles with your personal financial strategy, you'll be at least a quarter of a million dollars richer. Um, Really simple stuff about how money flows into your account and how you think about allocating that money. Um, talks about self-insurance, a bunch of other things, but pretty much says you need to save more money than you're going to save. And if you do that and invest in a low cost index fund, you're going to be incredibly wealthy, um, you know, 30 years later. So, um, that's the place I'd start. It wouldn't even get into any individual stocks. And I, for 97 to 99% of the people, that's the right approach. Uh, I feel compelled to give the caveat as we joke around here that investing in individual stocks is not a smart idea for most people. And most people don't want to put in the time or investment to do it. Most people don't want to do the back testing that Douglas and I do. And, and then we both use a quantitative approach, which creates an additional safeguard uh, for our approaches. So we're not just throwing darts at a um, dartboard um, because if we were, there'd be no chance of us uh, beating the market. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will make sure to put the titles of the book in the show notes for for the listeners. Now that you mentioned actually that that you know individual securities or stocks is not for everybody. So what which type of people, you no, know, you do you think that it is for, it is for? Yeah, I I'll, I'll start. I I think folks that understand themselves is first and foremost, understanding your psychology. Uh and then additionally you need to be willing to stick with it. Um, and there's a there's a balance between sticking with something that is just a falling knife, as they're often called, right? Sticking with something like all the way through, but having understanding yourself, having confidence in that, and then being able to stick with it, I think is first and foremost, because individual stocks do have a good amount of volatility. And also, they the time horizon that you might have to hold on to a stock isn't like a day or a week generally, right? We're not talking about day trading here. And so you need to be able to understand your psychology and stick with it. Those are like, those are the two most important things in my mind. It's really a psychological game, I think. Yeah, this is a really tough one because uh, most of your, uh, the most gifted people at investing in the world understand that you can uh, outperform with individual stocks. But someone like Buffett will say, oh yeah, but you shouldn't do it, right? 
And so we find ourselves in a similar spot where we both historically have outperformed and feel like we can continue to outperform. Uh, but we know the sacrifices we're making to do that. We know our time horizon has to be really long and, and some of the other things I mentioned. But it's always funny to watch Buffett sit in front of thousands of people in Omaha and be like, you guys aren't smart enough to do this. You, you should not do this. You should buy an index fund. And and in a way, we're saying the same thing, but neither of us think we're anywhere as intelligent as Buffett or Munger or Marx or Klarman or the list goes on, right? Um, but you know, if you wanted a breakdown for if people are interested, a book I'd recommend is um, Quantitative Value by Wes Gray and the Alpha Architect team mm, yeah. um, that breaks down why the quantitative approach to picking individual stocks um, can be successful. I think that's core to both our beliefs. That, like, There's ways to continue your research trend here, but generally we just have to sound like hypocrites almost and saying it's not right for you, <laughs> but it is right for us. Yeah, so do you have like, you know, um, if a friend of yours, you know, um, comes to you and asks like, how do I start with individual stocks? So do you have like, you know, ask yourself, uh, you know, um, questions to ask them, like, uh, to know if it's, if it's a fit for them? Yeah, I pretty much just tell them it's a bad idea. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, if you go back to episode two on the show, Dougal's was over there investing in China mobile. Um, and, and I told him it was a terrible idea. Turned out I was right. So uh, like, <laughs> it's pretty much just a bad idea. That's all I'd say. I, I'd ask what their time horizon is. I'd ask what they, what they like care about and what their goals are is what I mean by what they care about. Like, what are your long-term goals? Because I, I'd be looking for, this is kind of where Skippy goes, I'd be looking for the first, the real question is, should I invest in individual stocks? So I'd ask questions that would get to the answer to that question. Like, should they do it? So how long are you going to hold it? What are your financial goals? Um, and then if they really want to, I tell them to start small, which is not a question. But I'd have first start off with a set of ETFs, right? So that you can hold on to more broad market and then start small, like tiny bets in the portfolio. And you can add to positions over time. But that's how I would have someone start if they pass the, the should you questions. Yeah, to add to that and actually give a serious answer, like you all almost always start with time horizons, right? And then I love for, again, for 95% of the people, automated investing services like Wealthfront or Betterment. Uh, they're just so simple. They're tax efficient. Uh, even their cash management has decent um, interest rates. Like that's a great place to start. So I see people get in there that aren't used to investing. And some people have a hard time handling that volatility, which is like a well-diversified US markets, international markets, some bond funds, you know, like probably some uh, dividend aristocrats. And if you see a friend or colleague or whatever struggle with that level of volatility, you know they're not right for picking individual stocks. And, and then you probably, even if they got comfortable with that level of volatility, you know they probably don't have the time and interest to start researching individual stocks. So there's a lot of um, a lot of ways to get to a no, but I think most, most people are going to end up at a no. But yeah, Dougal's is right. Kind of stick your toe into it. Uh, feel things out. Another thing that really works is to have like 
5% of the portfolio is kind of your lotto ticket speculative bets portfolio where you kind of get to scratch that itch um, and get some skin in the game with individual stocks. But if you mess up or lose a lot of money, it's not super meaningful. Yeah. And uh, I kind of really agree on the time horizon, actually. And of course, and in investing in individual stocks, you know, it, it takes, I don't want to say that we're special, <laughs> but it takes a bit of, you know, you need to love um, checking financial statements. You know, you need to love how uh, how to analyze a business model and, and such. You need to love the, the game itself because... As we all know, investing is is not just for a few years. It's it's a lifelong <laughs> journey. It, it's like with Dougals have said how how he evolved from you know doing value investing and quant- quantitative models. It's it's really a long game, and yeah, time horizon and passion really matters on this on this type of uh, uh, what we do. Definitely, um, and I love that. Dougal's his approach has evolved so he sees um he sees the investments i make in a different through a different lens and i do for him as well so because we trust each other and we've known each other so long it's really great to have someone that you can go to and pitch ideas and and they're going to come at it from a totally different lens like i'm going to be looking at stocks that are trading at half their book value and really low pe ratios and he might just be saying that's complete garbage. Like, look at the management team, or look at the trends, uh, their revenue trends. It, it's really helpful to be able to talk to someone that you trust that has a different perspective. Fully agree. Fully agree. I love it. Even there was a couple weekends ago, um, I finally decided to pull the trigger on a, a stock I've been watching for a while, and it's great to. I'm texting Skippy. Right? It's great to be able to to start throwing things out to him that I know that he's going to hate. Like that's the the whole thing is I know that everything I'm about to send him he's going to hate, but I I want to hear that. It's kind of like uh, in the I think it's political teams will have a red team that goes in and their only job is to figure out like basically how to poke all the holes, <laughs> and that that works in this way. And so I get all the you know this is garbage, this is stupid arguments from him, and then I can run through those scenarios and still decide if it's something I still want to do. I find that to be incredibly helpful. Yeah, most of the time he just decides that he likes losing money, and then he goes for it. So it's great. <laughs> That's really amazing, actually, because you, you kind of found how how Warren Buffett has uh, Charlie Munger. You know, he, uh, Charlie Munger is his. Uh, well, well, board. I, I got to jump in there. Charlie Munger's smart. What are you saying about Dougal's? Dougal's is not Charlie Munger. I would, then again, I'm not <laughs> Buffett. So the, let's just I don't know that that analogy works. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, just, a, you know, how to 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 relate to the, the, to the general audience but <laughs> <laughs> and, and now let i want to because you you've been um we've been talking about you know uh, investing psychology and i've asked my guests uh this question or before or the dilemma in kind of investing uh which i, I don't know if you know nick majuli with his book you know just keep buying and he talks about this dilemma in investing where it's it's a game that you don't know if you're good at it you know if i've i've miss i've overused this analogy but with basketball if you see lebron james you know you immediately know that he's good in basketball the way he shoots the dribbles and such but in investing you know 
even with 15 years of outperformance, you know, with Bill Miller, you, you it's not a guarantee that next year you're gonna outperform. So this this is such a um, a great dilemma in investing. If you're if what do you how do you both approach this dilemma that you might not be really good at investing? <laughs> oh, it's a great one. I love the analogy. Um, it, the The question is, or that the answer is, it's both. You're you're if you're good, you're bad a lot of the times. Um, I've given this example on the show before, but when oil prices effectively went negative, um, Exxon Mobil. The world's largest oil company, or maybe the Saudi one is now, but for the longest time, it was Exxon, right? And uh, their prices, this was like 2020, their prices went to 1998 prices in terms of the value of their stock. Um, well, I saw that, did some quick research, said oil prices are negative. That's never happened before. This stock hasn't moved anywhere in 22 years. I bought the thing. I run a local investor club. I know some other people that bought the thing at the same time because I gave that pitch, right? And six months later, the stock's down. I had friends that exited and said, Skippy's an idiot, which is the right thing. People should always say that. But what I did is I held the stock for, I don't know if it was 12 or 18 more months and made a crazy return. You know, So that pick, and I'm just giving one individual example, but there's a bunch of these. I picked up some... New York City real estate during COVID times when everyone freaked out about that. Like that pick was wrong until it was right. And it just was a matter of being patient enough. You know, I'm looking for mean reversion or I'm valuing a stock and saying the true value is 50 bucks a share and it's currently to it trading at 20 bucks a share. Well, if you don't actually wait for it to come back to true value, you're not a good investor. Um, and that's where the psychology piece is so important here. Um, so I, I love that question and I hope I did a decent job answering it, but it's, it's not like stocks go up and to the right. You you have to sit through the down periods and there will be a lot of down periods, um, with my picks, certainly. And I'll add to that a little bit. I think that's a great answer. Even if there could be three or four decades from now and we could be ending our quote unquote investment careers, right. And maybe we're still beating the market. And still won't know whether or not we were good investors. But yes, yes. one thing that we will know is we weren't, we weren't wrong in the wrong way at the wrong time with the wrong allocations. Because that's, and what I mean by that is if you can be wrong in the wrong way and go to zero, and that's what you need to avoid. It's about staying invested and continuing with the, your, a disciplined approach if that's proven to be right for you. But some folks will just be wrong in the wrong way at the wrong time. And that, that can kill you, but you have to avoid the death line. So that's, what's most important to me is whether or not I'm a good investor or right or wrong is to not be wrong in the wrong way, right? So when you're playing with options and betting your full, full portfolio, that's, it just starts to get too dangerous in my opinion. Yeah. I have to jump in there because we'll, we'll pick on one of our favorites. I mean, Michael Saylor, if we talk process here, <laughs> Michael Saylor might end up making tons of money. His process is wrong. I'm happy to say that. He could come to my house and we can have beers. I'm happy to say that. It, he has he's taken out debt to buy an asset with no intrinsic value and he put his company at risk. It's a very poor process. Let's just say that. And the thing that where Douglas and I also check each other is some of those things. You know, I 
Um, I think you had William Green on the show before. We love William Green. William Green talks about staying in the game. That's the the most important thing you can do is stay in the game. So our investment philosophies are well balanced in a way that we're not taking bets that will take us to zero, right? We're going to stay in the game. That's critically important to us. Michael Saylor is not. There's other people that are not. And I, I really love that Diggles brought that up because um, a sound process is so important to this. And a lot of people that really struggle or hate investing simply start with a very poor process. Um, what you said, it kind of reminds me of the book um, I read a month ago, which is Thinking in Bets by Anne Duke. It's, it's, it's the process, not the outcome that you need to focus on because, yeah, can have a can really have a good outcome but uh, you're still an idiot <laughs> so yep. that's that can happen and uh, and about the yeah port, you mentioned portfolio allocation and uh, I, i'm curious to know how do you approach uh, that that uh, allocation how do you weight your bets oh uh, so Dougal's, I planted this one. I asked him to ask this question because I want to make fun of you. So Dougal's, I don't know what he does over there. He buys some high flyers and then they go they go up, up, up. And pretty soon he has like two or three stocks of the majority of his portfolio. And I yell at him constantly to sell those things. And he doesn't. So you want to start by answering this one and then I can give a rational response, Dougal's? irrational yeah sure i this is this is a place that honestly i'm still playing with and trying to figure out because as as skippy mentioned in the majority of my portfolio the farfin model side of my portfolio as stocks increase in value and they compound i i get pretty heavily concentrated and um a lot of the return comes from that concentration but there's also risk in that concentration and so it's figuring out um, how to how to get to that right allocation is something I'm honestly still trying to do, and I've you know read through like the Kelly criterion and looked at what other folks do, and in the end, I'm still comfortable with it. So there isn't a what I what I want to make sure is to go back to what I was saying before to avoid the death line, and I don't feel like I'm risking that honestly um, with any of the allocations. So I still feel good, but there isn't a I don't have a um, like a specific criterion that I look for. I I have allocations that I make when I first purchase. And then like the casino game, I let it ride until I, ha- I do have sell criteria, but they're pretty aggressive. Like on, in my model portfolio, I sell when something is beaten the market by 35x. That's a really long compounding period that a stock could have that doesn't get hit all that often. But like I sold NVIDIA at the beginning of this year because it, it, it had hit that, right? As like one example. And so it does happen. But um, otherwise, yeah, Skippy just yells at me all the time and calls calls what I do foolishness. but. That's how I think about it. He really has to trim those positions. But um, then again, I don't have any examples of my portfolio of beating the market by 35 times because uh, I buy a bunch of garbage. Um, so uh, mine's simpler. I equal weight my stocks. Um, I need to be, you know, that I need to have at least five to six positions, which would be very con- concentrated for your average investor. Um if we want to get really nerdy, I can explain why it's that number. Buffett and Munger and Klarman and others. And the Kelly criterion all factor into that. But I'm happy being really concentrated. At times in my quantitative uh, model, I'll have as many as 30 individual holdings. But most of the time, it's, mm. I don't know, around 5 to 10. Yeah, that's uh, 
it's it's really about you know how what makes you sleep well at night and for for myself i mean with i have uh, i have a 30 percent allocation to berkshire so it, it with that allocation it makes i i don't i have a problem because yeah i mean who, who can say bad things about berkshire i mean the downsides are really I don't want to talk more about or to to argue about it, but for me the downsides with with it it's really low, and I mean I I don't want to because I I've recently um, accepted or adopted this uh, thinking that I need to think more about the downsides than the upsides because if you keep your downsides low, the upsides will take care of themselves. So yeah, it's it's a really nice uh, answers for both of you. It's it's actually like a polar opposite. <laughs> I, I I find it amazing how both of you can really get along given how polarizing your <laughs> your approach at and approaches in investing. <laughs> yeah, who says we get along? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I want to go back to your Berkshire point. That's so interesting and I I totally uh am with you. I actually don't earn uh, own Berkshire at the moment. But to me, that's almost this equity that has, um, in some ways, bond-like properties. I mean, the really predictable cash flows. Um, you know it's going to outperform in a downturn. If we're talking portfolio allocation, I almost want to take the Berkshire holding out of it because it's just such a unique um, company. Yeah, I can talk for hours about it but i don't want to go with it but but yeah it's a it's a really interesting company if i if i may say a bit about it it's i take it like a a good you know um a good um alternative than going with index funds you know i mean with index funds you, you get you get of course you get to own berkshire also but you also get to own the bad ones because it's it's a top 500 if we get the example for smp 500 you get the not you get the bad good ones and also the bad ones but with berkshire it's quite handpicked with really great great quality businesses with the equity portfolio plus uh, he owns, you know, really good private businesses like with Berkshire Energy. That is a utility company that is private. <laughs> Imagine if a utility company is a public one; all its retained earnings needs to be, you know, um, given out as dividends because that's how you would expect a utility, a public utility company is. But with Berkshire Energy, that it's under Buffett's wing in Berkshire. All its retained earnings are going reinvested back to its business, and that's how it became, you know, the second largest energy producer in the U.S. So, those facts actually, you know, blow me away and makes me sleep well at night. Even, you know, even if Warren or Charlie knock on the wood, you know, I mean, they're near their term, but they're really old. But, but I, I'm I'm still really optimistic about its future with Ajit and Greg um, taking the helm. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. We debated on the show um, early this year, Occidental uh, Petroleum. And this mm -hmm. was another where uh, I was the the naysayer and Dougals was thinking about getting a position there, right? Um, and I just said, way too much debt, you can't do it. And then Buffett's been laughing at me as he adds his position and says, you know, Skippy doesn't know what he's talking about because if I'm happy with Occidental's debt position, then it must be good. Um, so, Dougals, are you still mad at me about that one? Think of all the money you could have had if you would have purchased the I Occidental had to get over Petroleum. It. I had to get over it because too much anger was building up. But it's all good. It's all good. You've saved me from other other Occidentals that went in the wrong direction. So it's all good. 
Yeah, well, and the next pitch is coming. All right, there's there's always the next pitch. <laughs> exactly. And that's what true friends are for. So mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so we we can kind of you know transition into your investing styles. I, I know you said bits of it from our conversation earlier, but and I know that Dougal mentioned he is using his own Farfin investing model and Skippy with his deep value investing style. But I'm curious to know what differences or topics that about each of your own investing styles that both of you seem to not agree with each other. I mean, you mentioned some, but what are those that you don't really can come around with? Yeah, I I just firmly believe that it's it, you mentioned sleeping at night. I just firmly believe that buying something that's worth a dollar for 50 cents um is critical. That that's how I sleep well at night, right? And um so I always believe believe that mean reversion piece and that's where Dougal's and I are just polar opposites. I mean, we we always um joke around being equity brothers because there ends up over you know like once a year or something we end up owning the same stock which tells you how exciting that stock must be i think currently uh we both own um alibaba so that's fascinating alibaba super cheap from my perspective and it has the the desirable growth prospects that Dougal's um admires but yeah that's where we really different or that's where we have a fundamental difference in most cases and why we typically don't hold the same stocks is because Dougal's is looking for the NVIDIA's of the world that significantly outperform the market for um, extended periods of time. And I'm saying any stock that has those characteristics is likely it's been a high flyer too long and it's going to get pulled back to earth. So I just, I just can't get comfortable in that space and he can. And the, amazing thing i mean this took me 10 years in my investing life or maybe more i i always got the value investing approach but i really had a hard time getting the momentum investing approach and the smartest people in the world will tell you those are the two best factors you can invest in and actually blending their styles together is um reduces volatility in a way that can increase um performance so like i finally come around to that and i think that's why Another reason why I like talking to Dougals and um, in some cases, like you can take our investing styles and, and blend them together in a way that would, we, we actually did one back test where we did 50% of the portfolio with him and 50% with me and the performance looked great. Uh, drawdowns were less and everything else. So I don't know if we'll ever end up formally doing that, um, but it's, it's complementary styles. They're just different. Yeah, the one thing I'll I'll add on to your you like to buy a dollar for fifty cents, and I like to buy twenty dollars for three dollars. That's that's like the that is the way Whoa. to view it. Um, but yeah. honestly, that 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 is right because the like the stocks that end up compounding for me and hold for a long time, they go up by while I hold them six, seven, eight x or so, right? Which isn't something that will happen with Skippy. And then I also will hold like last year I held Tall Education Group, and I held that up. It's a Chinese education company. I held that for about, it was about 4X what I bought it for. And then I held it 95% down, <laughs> right? And so um, when China decided that they weren't allowed to make a profit anymore. And so these are the, you know, that's some of the volatility that ends up happening. Um, that's one of the main things. The, the other element I'll say is that 
my quantitative model doesn't use a lot of information. The only data point that I get is price. Um, and then from price, I calculate returns. I look at long-term returns, but uh, I don't use uh, all the information that comes from financial statements, et cetera, in my model. When I, when I pick individual stocks, I do. I comb through 10Ks and 10Qs and all that when I just pick individual stocks for the small part of my portfolio. But my model only uses price. It's the only data point that I pick. Yeah, it's it's really kind of interesting um, listening to both of you talk about it, especially with, you know, Skippy with his uh, 50 cents in a dollar and you with kind of momentum. It made me curious on how, you know, momentum value investing were, will work. And I'm really looking forward to that model if you can kind of publish it again in like in a blog post with Parfin. Yeah, that's good feedback. I will definitely consider it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah. So as much as I call it garbage, I do I I respect what Skippy does. It it just doesn't work for me. But I, I greatly respect it. I don't know if you'll ever really get there with my my way of working, Skippy. I'm not sure you'll ever quite get to respect, but uh but I respect in the other direction. So just putting that out there. I mean, respect and actually putting my money on the line with your garbage is two different things. There's lots True. of respect. True. I we no, gotta no. trim your your <laughs> Uh, the top holding positions can't be 40% of your portfolio or more. That's that's where I have the most harbor. So so now, Dougal, I mean, you, you've already mentioned bits of your Farfin investing model. And I read it in your Substack post, as I mentioned earlier, and it's really interesting. I mean, it, it it's really nice in a sense that it takes the human factor out of the equation. But uh, especially with you know the the Tina or this there's no alternative situation. But as much as I want to pick your brains about it now, I'll stop myself as I believe it deserves to have its own episode. So I hope I can do it with you after my contract on board uh, soon in the future because I cannot do interviews like this on on board the ship. It's the the internet is not really <laughs> um, it's not really um, you know stable in a sense uh, until you know Starlink comes into our ship, you know, with Elon Musk, <laughs> with the internet. But I, I hope in the future I could uh, do it with you. But but for now, if you may, can you share some bits, you know, as a tease for my um, investing nerds that are listening in this uh, episode to, uh, to look forward in the future? Was that a question to me specifically? Yes. Oh. Yes. Um, yeah, sure. And so I, I mentioned uh, it's called Farfin, which was a random set of letters that when I hit my keyboard, that came out. That's 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 just where well, the name came okay. from. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's based on something I, I call long trend momentum, because most momentum investing, you might look at the last year of data uh, and then it takes off like from that way. But I couldn't like from my own psychology, I couldn't get behind that. And so as I mentioned, I believe in flywheels and compounding effects. And so what I wanted to look for is companies that have at least five years of, of being public and strong performance, but usually it's more like 10, 15, 20 years that they have been, that they've shown um, consistency. And so I have a couple filters where I look at consistency of performance. And then I also look at what their nearer term and nearer term for me, as I look at the last one year, three years, five years, and 10 years of performance. And so you've been consistent. And you've also, you're at a high point of momentum over generally about the last decade as well. Uh, and then I have uh, max um, performance filters because I, as I mentioned, I, I want to make sure that you still have gas left in the tank. And so you had to have beaten the market. I won't give specifics here, but you have to have beaten a market by like a certain amount um, consistently. 
and then you could not have beaten the market over a certain amount um, during that period too, because that that gives me confidence that there's still gas left in the tank for you to you know to give me returns. And so that's the that's the teaser um, of how it works. Um, I know it it uh, fits my psychology so so well because um, that's the I love watching these little babies grow up to be twenty dollar babies. You know, like, like I just I really I enjoy that, and I really like I get into the the stocks so much and. Um, although it's a quantitative model, which tells me what to buy after I buy, I then like nerd out on the 10 Ks and understanding the industries. And right. I get to learn about so many different industries right now. And my, my two biggest holdings right now are Dexcom and Broadcom. And they're so different. Mm -hmm. right? I get to, I get to learn about glucose monitoring and medical devices and what happens there. And then I also get to learn about, um, software and packet switching and, Right, networking on the Broadcom side, so I, I just find it to be really fascinating. Dougals, they're not that different. They both end in com. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Skippy. No, you so, say that. Uh, I have to. I have to <laughs> jump in. That um, what I love about his model, because to be honest, even though we've been uh, friends for two decades, like if it was absolute garbage, I want to do a podcast with it. But I just wouldn't. I, I feel like that was irresponsible. Um, if you think about investor psychology, I think there's two ways that the human brain works or th there's more, but the, the two most common are probably like, oh, that asset value is going up and up and up. And I don't care what that company does. I see the stock price go up. I'm interested. And that creates more demand to buy the shares. So the, you can see the human brain with thousands or millions of investors being like, what is happening with Broadcom over here? What is, and I truly believe that the growth of um, that equities price is driven by the fundamentals. But for Dougal's initial screen, he doesn't even care. He just says, I want to find something that, that meets these uh, guardrails, and then I'm going to invest in it. I, I understand why a lot of those stocks continue to grow up. The other way that the brain works, I think, is more tailored to my investing style that is, Oh my goodness, how is this thing so cheap? Like they have a hundred million in assets and they only that stock trades for 50 million. Like you can eventually see the the bargain hunters are gonna go, there's something up here, and there there's a reason that that stock price should go up. So I think we're just at both ends of ends of the spectrum, but I really respect um his approach. I, I think it's incredibly sound. And I love that if it's his uh investing DNA. Yeah, and there's there's a yeah. part of that when when you talk about going up and up and up and people grabbing it. The reason I can't get behind that for the like shorter term momentum, like for the past year, is because you get a lot of the meme stock type stuff that's in that, and that doesn't that doesn't do it for me. I love great companies. Like I like looking at great companies. And if you've been compounding and going up and up and up for 15 years, the fundamentals kind of have to be there to a certain extent. They may not justify that price according to like a Skippy style or, or Benjamin Graham model right now, they may not justify the price, but there's a there there. Like you're because people have for 15 years been looking at your 10Ks, your 10Qs and buying in, like there's there's gotta be more there. So that that's the part that I like about it. Yeah, it's it's really it's really good dynamics actually, and also a good teaser there, uh Douglas, on how you tease about your farfin model. I have to hand it to you. And I kind of want to as a Skippy about when he mentioned, you know, how about the stock being so cheap, cheap, <laughs> but uh, how do you go through the process of it? Like example, you know, some, because I, I believe, you know, some stocks deserve to be cheap 
you know there should be a reason why they're really cheap because it, it it's not you know in our age now of so much free information or data we are in the internet it's it's not it's not like you're the first one who saw it i mean there could be have so many people who saw that it's really cheap so how do you approach of those kind of you know not into going into value traps yeah this is the value trap conversation i mean um my my quantitative model uses uh, i think it's eight factors um but you're you're looking for um things that have low debt uh have high current ratio so current assets to liabilities of more than two i won't go through all the specifics uh low pe uh, low price to book um revenues that are actually growing over the period so it's not just this dying company that's meant to that that has no future prospects it's something where the revenues are actually growing and the fundamentals are getting cheaper and then it's um stocks that basically can't go bankrupt because of their strong cash positioning and their operating margins and everything else so hey listen there are um if i buy 10 stocks in my quantitative screen uh there are always some that go down and sometimes they go down significantly more than 50 percent. but typically that's one or two of my 10 equities my average returns over the last 12 years are 17 percent um, so more often that comes out in the wash, you know, um, I think I try to not spend too much mental energy on the value trap stuff because it, I'm a, it's a quantitative model, right? I, I know that I'm going to get a few stinkers in there, but I know that in most cases, when you buy something that's worth a dollar for 50 cents, it trends back towards a dollar. And, uh, if that happens in five or seven of your 10 picks and then you lose, on a few others, you end up in a really good spot. Really interesting because you always kind of have an approach to to it and having this kind of models or checklists is really important in approaching those. So yeah, I, I really love it. <laughs> so now on towards my favorite question, actually, that I always ask my guests in every episode, in every damn interview that I do, uh, which is, because we would talk about investing psychology and I want to ask what is your worst investing bias and how do you actively handle it? My worst investing bias is definitely the fact that we have these really cool Skippy and Diggles talk investing stickers for the show and we want to get some in your hands. So as you travel around the world, you can, uh, you can evangelize for us. Um, Sorry, that's a joke. I'll let, I'll let Dougals answer this one first because I need to think about this. This is a really good question. But I'm serious. If you send us an address, we'll give you some stickers. <laughs> I think for me, it is that I, I love great companies. And like I have so much belief in, uh, in companies being able to compound that it can blind me at times. It's a reason I have a number of my friends are uh, angel investors. So they invest in like startup companies, really, really young companies. And that's a world where I've done some myself, but it's usually, uh, you know, I just, I believe in that person and, you know, I plan to never see the money again. I don't really be, they're not full investments necessarily. Um, I wouldn't be as good at that because I get blinded by, I'm like, yeah, you sound awesome. Like I, I want you to compound. I want you to grow. Right. And so the way that I, as we've talked about here, like the way that I combat that is through the quantitative model. Like that, that's the way that I, I, I go against my own emotion and bias is by having the model that tells me what to do. And then I do the thing that the model says, but I, I know that I fall in love with some of these companies. So I have to be extra careful, which is why it's great that I have a Skippy, right? I have to be extra careful when I'm picking stocks on my own. Like I, 
I want to make sure that I'm thinking through all the biases and that um, that I have someone that can, you know, call it stupid so that I can make sure I can ask all the right questions to myself. Yeah, and my bias is simply your last question really nailed it. It's that cheap equals good. And that's not always the case, right? So with almost all things in life, um, I, I'm willing to spend the extra time to save a few bucks or to feel like I'm getting a deal. And and that's especially true in my equity portfolio, right? So if I see, you know, Kohl's is the recent example for me. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but US retailer that's out of favor, um, has a real estate portfolio that's been valued as much as $8 billion and currently trades for about $3 billion, right? Um, it was went through, they tried to sell, there was some acquisition stuff um, that fell through and the stock price is really depressed right now. For me, that's like, what it's a purchase I made outside of my quantitative model because it's so cheap. But to your point earlier, there's a reason it's cheap. Like the future prospects of that are not good. Their inventories are way too high. Um, and, and so will that end up working out in a way that makes me a lot of money? I don't know. Um, but I think the bias that I always have to fight is just because something's cheap doesn't mean that it's a great investment. Um, because I'm, I'm naturally suited to think that things that are cheap are good. And I mean, with, with investing bias, it's always, you know, a battle against yourself because, but the, the, the great first step is, you know, acknowledging it. But in, in my case, it's this, uh, you know, a confirmation bias, like example for, um, with the company that they've been researching for, for weeks. And then suddenly a super investor, I, I saw it's 13F and they, they, they bought that. So like, it's like a really big confirmation bias. And I, I try to not to get also blindsided about it by, you know, always looking at the downside, you know, not only checking the upside, you know, on seeking alpha on Twitter or in value investors club. It's always, covering my downside so we all have different approaches but it really boils to how to put take out the human equation which is really great especially with doogles oh you hear that i think i think he just won this interview doogles i think he's on your side i'm concerned about this <laughs> they always come over eventually <laughs> well listen <laughs> it's not even fair to me you come and pitch this oh my stocks might go up seven to eight times and i'm like oh, oh we're buying some trash over here I, I this is not a fair fight true <laughs> no 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 don't don't I, i'm not picking sides <laughs> and this is really fun <laughs> so i want to because i want to go to the my kind of you know second to the last questions on this in this interview I, because i don't want to take so much of your time guys i mean i know you're you're busy persons <laughs> in a sense but i want to move into you know personal finance as my podcast also focuses on this one because as I, I believe, you know, um, uh, investing and personal finance should go hand in hand. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it's part of the process. So I, I want to ask in, in your own way, how do you handle your own finances? And have you found the magic sauce for it to be sustainable in your lives? Diggles, go ahead. It's a, it's a wonderful question. This also just like investing, I think you need to match the your own psychology with the way that you manage finances. Um, so I have, in order to fight my own bias, um, I make sure that there's a, a good amount of cash that sits like in savings accounts that is safe because when I see things that I want to buy, I want to buy them on the stock market. <laughs> and so it's like, so that is, that is the non-stock money. 
Uh, and then there's a certain amount of, of funds that my wife and I have agreed that we we're going to put into the stock market each year at the start of the year. Um, there was a point where I used to invest uh, monthly, like I did monthly dollar cost averaging. I switched away from that to manage my own psychology because I, I invest once a year in my model and that doesn't allow for more and more decisions. Like otherwise I have 12 decisions, right? I have to make. And so I do that with my personal finances too. I make sure that I, I like to think about all the whatever scenarios I can think of ahead of time and then already make decisions on those scenarios. So like this savings account, I will not touch unless um, XYZ happens. This savings account, I will not touch until XYZ happens. I have multiple savings accounts. I have multiple brokerage accounts um, and I split them out based on whatever decisions I've made for that, uh, that bucket of money, like at those, at those times. And so that's the way that I try and manage my own psychology. And my wife and I have monthly finance meetings that we sit down and we look at like what's happening and make sure that we are adhering to the, to what we stated that we do at the same time. Um, I'm, I'm different than Skippy in that, like when I go to buy the car or lease a car, as we're leasing a car, I show up at the dealer and I'm like, I want that car. Give it to me. Whereas he like flies across the country to find the cheapest car he can find. Right. There's, <laughs> so there's like, there's different psychologies there. And so I need to manage my own by having buckets of money that I can't touch, but the money that I can touch, I touch it frequently. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, you know, I, I have to manage myself there. It's funny because I I bet your listeners are trying to figure out who's more fun here, right? Skippy or Dougals? Well, Doug, I just learned Dougals has a monthly finance meeting. Like that is the least fun thing I can possibly imagine. So <laughs> this is, I just slam dunk. I just won. This is great. Um, Yeah, I, uh, gosh, I'm not quite that complicated. I I do think my core principles for personal finance coming out of the book that I already mentioned, The Wealthy Barber. Um, and that basically uses, uh, envelope or a bucket approach. So money comes in the door and certain percentages go in different spots for savings, for investing, for retirement. Um, in my experience and most people's experience, budgeting is kind of dumb and doesn't really work, but putting money into different envelopes that effectively helps you stay within a budget, even though it's a very similar approach, it's just different with how the psychology thinks, um, I found to be very, very successful. And so, um, you know, you can't be an investor if you don't have any savings to invest, right? And that's why I love your question here too, because the personal finance piece of the equation is the thing you got to figure out first if you truly want to be a great investor. The other thing I'd say is just um, life is not as simple as a back test. So I don't want any of your 22 year old investors to be like, well, look at this. I'll just, I just did my spreadsheet and I'm going to be worth uh, $3.4 million when I turn 65 and I'm going to, you know, this is my future salary and everything else. No, it's not like that. And it shouldn't be like that. And if it is like that, you're not having enough fun with your friends. You're not having enough unexpected trips or, um, you know, your car breaks down or whatever. Like, don't think of life as a spreadsheet because that's no way to go through living life, in my opinion. Uh, have some simple principles, maybe use an envelope or bucket approach and make sure you have savings. Um, so you're in a good position when the unexpected happens, but also don't feel like you can never go on vacation. That's just, you're going to look back and regret that in my opinion. Yeah. Those are truly great advice, especially for, in my generation, I'm, I'm not saying you're, both of you are old, but 
Uh, we're we're still relatively young in, in a sense, but those are really good. And also, you mentioning about you know personal finance and investing, I re- I truly agree with those because of course, if you if you jump into investing right away and you get burned, you you're always gonna blame that the stock market is rigged. So so without doing personal finance first and then tackling investment is not the way to go. Is it okay if I throw out one divergent? Topic. Yes. Okay. Yes, of course. Um, of course, to go. Is something that Skippy just said reminded me of. There's this math concept called the simplex method. I won't go into all the detail of it because it'll be boring for your folks, and I also just can't because I'm not a mathematician. But the the core of the concept is that the the most optimized like decision making path is at each stage you make the best next decision, and that you don't make the next twenty decisions before you even start. It's always the best next decision that you can possibly make. And so where, where that uh, maps into what Skippy said is, like, I, do, I have a cash flow model for my family for the next 50 years. I've built this out. And the only thing that I know is that it won't be true. Like, I know that that cash flow model won't be true. But what it helps me, knowing my own personal finance psychology, it, it helps me to know what could be true. Like, and I, I update that to say what could be possible at the end of, like, not what's the best case scenario, but what could be possible. But then each day, each week, each month, there are decisions that we all have to make. And what I know is that that next decision, the compounding decisions could or could not lead to my, you know, 50 year plan. But I think it's really important to know that every decision matters and that the best, best next decision is the one that you should, as an individual, I believe, focus on and not necessarily think about 20 years from now, because you're not promised 20 years from now. Yeah, it's. I I am kind of you know awed about the, the simplex model. I want to kind of check on on it, and it's really amazing that how 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 you did the DCF model on your personal finance <laughs> going to the future. Either amazing, really amazing, yeah, really depressing is the word that was coming to my mind. Actually, <laughs> I like spreadsheets. Yeah. So um, before I go to you know, to the last question I asked my guests at the end of the show, um, where can people find more of your work and, you know, places to connect, to connect with both of you? So we have um, a great Substack that Dougal's runs. That's the best place. All the articles we break down on the show, everything's there. You can even subscribe via email. Um, podcast is Skippy and Dougal's Talk Investing. Um, and, you, you know, uh, that's easy to find on any of your favorite platforms. We do listener mail, skippydiggles at gmail.com. And there's a Twitter account at skippydiggles as well. So we're all over the place. Um, and hopefully we're easy to find and consume. Yeah. And if you just remember one thing, skippydoogles.com will have everything that, that Skippy just mentioned. If you, so if you go to skippydoogles.com, you'll find our Substack, our Twitter, our email, all that. I'll make sure to put it in the show notes and, um, in the episode. So again, this is a question that I like to ask my guests at the end of the show, and it's kind of consistent now. And this is will this will be my you know final question uh, on my guests because I kind of changed it before <laughs> because my first question was too broad actually, and it's kind of you know um, had like a pattern on my guests on how they answer the question. So I kind of changed it, and I have to admit, and I, I always admit this in every episode, but I, I kind of admit that I kind of rip. Rip it off from another podcast, which is the Value Investing um, for the Legends podcast from Columbia Business School. But I can't help it, but it's because it's a really great uh, question to ask. So here it is. So, what worries you and also excites you about the future? 
what's the thing that keeps you awake at night? May it be a financial trend or or anything that will bite us again or any field. I'm happy to start. Uh, I I have I have a, a couple different things that I'll throw out. Um, one is that the inequity that is growing in our country in the U.S. Uh, is unsustainable, and democracy is built off of at least not having vast inequities. Democracy is only sustainable in that in that that path. And so I mentioned before, Warren Buffett always talks about bet on America. And I talked about the stock market going up and, you know, going down and then coming back up. So long as the U.S. has either the reserve currency of the world or close to, right, as a dominant force in the world, that will be true. But if our growing inequity continues, it won't be true. And I just see that growing every year right now. And so that's the thing that keeps me up most at night. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll just name that one thing. Yeah, I sleep pretty well at night. I uh, Dougal's is really messed with my head here because he did like the the broad question. I, I agree that I'm concerned about the inequity specifically in the U.S., but in the world as well. Um, it's not fair that some people have jobs um, that are basic. I mean, some people have jobs that make 10 times the amount that other people make. And I think it's clear that the people on the lower end of the spectrum are working harder. Um, that just doesn't seem right. So I'd, I definitely echo what Dougal's is saying there on the investing front. I mean, the thing, this is where I initially went. The thing I love about being a value investor is I sleep well at night all the time because I only buy the stuff that is cheap. So it doesn't matter how expensive the U S stock market is. It doesn't matter how expensive, you know, like all these other things going on. It doesn't matter that people are crazy and buying NVIDIA 10 times sales or whatever. Dougal's wasn't it like a hundred times sales at one point. It was just absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. Like I don't own that stuff. If I own that stuff, I want to sleep well at night because I'd be like, there's no way this is sustainable, but the stuff I own, I just know is cheap and I'm confident that it's going to go up and I'm going to make great, great returns in any market. Even, um, I mean, value investing worked in Japan in the 1980s and 1990s when the stock mm-hmm. market wasn't, the stock market as a whole wasn't doing anything. So if I narrowly take that question to mean what keeps me up at night relating to investing, um, I'm good. I'm comfortable with my approach. If we talk about the larger issues, uh, then there's a lot to be worried about in this world. Um, and I, I definitely wish inequity was something that we were, um, moving towards uh, fixing rather than it seems to be getting greater and greater, the differences between the haves and the have nots worldwide. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. And also in my, in my own country here in the Philippines, it's the, the gap between the poor and the rich, it's just getting really uh, greater uh, as years go by. So yeah, but now I want, I kind of want to end the podcast with a positive note. And I'm going to ask, like, you know, on the other side with a question, which is what excites you about the future? Human beings are incredibly resilient. Like, one of the things I, I love about studying the past is seeing all the times where the world should have come to an end or civilization should have come to an end. And it never does or it hasn't to date. I love resilience of humanity. So, as much as I, I talk about the inequity piece, We'll figure it out. Like I, I have confidence that we as a globe, like we'll figure it out. I don't know how, um, but we will. And I love seeing that. I see it in my my day job all the time where there's like impossible 
uh, circumstances that come up, but somehow they get conquered. And Skippy reminds me of this all the time when I've mentioned like possibly like shorting stocks sometimes. And he'll go, don't bet against the people at that company who show up every day and work hard to try and and make that company stick around. Humans are so resilient. That's what that, that's that's really keeps me going. I I'm an optimist in that way. If Dougal shorts a company, I'm gonna send uh, like thousands of personally endorsed letters to every person in that company saying, "This guy bet against you. <laughs> it's your job to prove him wrong. I want you. I want him to lose a lot of money because of you." Um, I agree with Dougal's on that front. I mean, I'm. One of the things I'm optimistic right now about is uh, if we can call it the post-COVID world, there's been a reset for a lot of people. The reset that's happened for me, I think, is not too unique. I cherish tr- time with my friends. Um, I cherish the flexibility that comes with doing a podcast with someone in the Philippines. And this has been a blast. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, so <laughs> it's been a really nice reset for me where... Um, you know, I wouldn't always have get togethers or it, uh, now I look for excuses to spend time with family and friends in a way that I didn't previously. And that's just, that is the best time of my life, you know? And, and so the fact that I have reset and cherished that even more than I ever did. Um, if, if a buddy asked me to fly across the country for a 40th birthday party, like I'm going to find a way to be there. Or if there's it, just, you know, if people want to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro, let's figure out how to make this work because it's important. So that's what I'm really optimistic about because I don't think I'm the only one. And I have great friends and family who humor me in those things. Um, they're also cherishing those times right now more than they did maybe three years ago. That's a really nice uh, way to end this episode with a good positive touch on being optimistic on human human race <laughs> in general so yes again i'm i really appreciate you both of you both of you having here uh, me on the show i and really appreciate also how generous you both of you in you know um answering my questions and of course a bit of bantering with both of you as, as usual <laughs> and uh, i hope i can i hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as i do and i hope i can have you again both of you in in, in the show in the future this is a lot of fun yeah thank you appreciate your time as well and enjoy yeah. the the ship yeah travel oh, safe yeah. thank you really appreciate you having us yeah. on and and putting up with our uh, craziness so thanks so much mm-hmm.